Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is the... Verse 4. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup, and thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. So now this afternoon we look at number four. David has the Lord always set before him as his portion. So what I'm going to need you to do to help me this afternoon, it's going to help me know you're awake and you're with me, is to repeat after me aloud. So we're going to make it personal. Say, you are my portion. portion. One more time. You are my portion. portion. Okay, is that true of us? David says next, the Lord is always before him. He set before him, verse 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. The Lord is His portion. He sees the coming Messiah. He sees that He'll be raised from the dead. And He sees the Messiah as His portion. Now in verse 6, David could be referring, first of all, to the temporal boundaries of Canaan. The lines, the boundaries are allotted unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly, a beautiful inheritance. And certainly that was the land of Canaan. It was, it was beautiful. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was God's blessing and gift to them. But David makes clear in verse 5, whatever Canaan was, the Lord is the portion of his inheritance. The word portion means choice. It's like a choice steak. You know, there are different qualities of meat steak. Uh, you've got choice, which is the highest, and you've got these other grades that are below. So David is saying God is choice. God is supreme. God is superior to everything else. God is choice and that God is David's supreme treasure. He is the portion of mine inheritance. So David looks forward to the next life and says there, the Lord is the treasure of my inheritance. Whatever the inheritance means for us on the other side. Whatever on the other side of the grave is part of heaven. The supreme portion of our inheritance. The Lord Himself is the treasure. There's nothing beside Him. There's nothing beyond Him. He's it. And then everything else about the inheritance is secondary, David says. But then when David looks to this life, this world he's living... He says, the Lord is the portion of my cup, thou maintainest my lot. In the Old Testament, a cup could be something symbolizing great blessing or great trial and affliction. Take, for example, David in Psalm 116, he says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So in this cup, David sees is a cup of salvation. So God saves David, and in the cup, he takes salvation, and with a cup, You drink it by faith. So what David is saying, in the cup of salvation, there's great blessing. There's great benefits from God in that cup. We drink that cup of blessing gladly. But in the same cup, sometimes there's great affliction. There's great trial. Both are part of God's plan for you of salvation. Whether it's the trial and affliction that's designed to sanctify you, or the great blessings and benefits that God gives to the graces of His Spirit, the cup of salvation is both blessing and trial and affliction. So what David is saying, whether it's the world to come, the Lord is the treasure 
of my inheritance. But today, the Lord is the treasure. He's the portion of whatever's in His cup. Whether it's the cup of great trial and sorrow and losses, or the cup of great mountaintop blessings and everything in between. When Jesus is set before you, always before you, to stabilize you, to give us balance so that we're not moved, then whatever is placed in the cup, because Jesus purchased for you whatever comes into your life as that which God would use to draw you closer and to make you like Jesus Christ. Now, notice what David says. Two things need to happen for this to be true in our lives. First, there's renunciation. And second, there's appropriation. Renunciation. Their sorrows, verse 4, shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. Now David's clearly talking about idolatry. And he's talking about some Israelites. He would say, their sorrows shall be multiplied that run after other gods. How will they, how will they be uh, multiplied? One in judgment. There will be sorrows that will come to idolaters in the day of judgment. But number two, their disappointment. All that they thought would be the result of chasing other gods. The God of money. The God of entertainment. The God of intimacy. The God of drugs. The God of alcohol. Whatever the God is going to bring utter and complete disappointment. Whatever... The world hastens after other gods for, and clearly the Bible says, is some kind of joy, some kind of fulfillment. Their sorrows are going to be multiplied, and they will be brought to utter and complete shame and disappointment. So listen to David's renunciation. David is not saying, I could never be like that. We know David struggled with gods. We know he fell to the God of intimacy, didn't he, with Bathsheba. Notice his renunciation. I will not offer. I will not take their name into my lips. Renunciation. I've talked to people at times with tears in their eyes where they renounced sin. They hated it. They confessed it. They were grieved. But they went right back to the same sins. Why is that? Because renunciation will do no good without appropriation. To take possession of something. So we must renounce the idols. We must say affirmatively, I will not, by the grace of God, I will not, Lord be willing, I will not go there, do that. But you will until you appropriate. Now how does David appropriate? The Lord is my treasure. The Lord is mine inheritance. Now what's the first word that you conjure up when you think of the word inheritance? Probably treasure, money, right? When some wealthy man leaves a great inheritance to his children, we know that's good, that's treasure, that's wealth. See, if David doesn't turn now after renouncing idolatry and turn and pursue God as the supreme treasure, what's going to happen to David? He's going to be moved. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Unless, David, you just renounce and you don't pursue. You just say no, but you don't say yes to Jesus Christ. You don't follow hard after God 
as David says in Psalm 63. Now this is what happened to Asaph in Psalm 73. The language is very similar to what happened to Asaph. He was almost gone. He had almost slipped. He had almost fallen. He was being shaken and moved. And he tells us the reason in Psalm 73. He was envious at the prosperity of the wicked. They just have it so easy. They've got great inheritances. They have a lot of money. And they have no troubles. And he said, me on the other hand, I've cleansed my heart in vain. And I've washed my hands in innocency. And all I get is plagued and chastening every morning. The word plagued means stricken. Chastened, of course, is disciplined. Now these people, who don't even know the Lord, they have it so well, so good, and yet here I am serving God. And what does it mean? Stricken, afflicted, chastened. Asa said, I almost fell with those thoughts. I almost departed until I went into the sanctuary and understood their end. And as he makes his progression through this psalm, he comes down then after he makes this recovery. In other words, Asaph set the Lord again before him, and his feet became stable. And this is what he said in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee? Renunciation. No one have I in heaven but God. Really? My dad went to be with the Lord last June. I have him in heaven. And my dad's a great treasure. Surely Asaph has somebody in heaven other than God. Renunciation. There is no one in heaven that rivals the supremacy of God. No one. Not even my dad. And I'm sure, Lord willing, when I get there, he'll say to me, you don't rival him. Right? Some of you have people in heaven already that you love. They're dear. They're a treasure. You should say in renunciation, there's no one in heaven you have beside God. And on earth, I don't desire anybody. Really? I mean, are you married, Asaph? How's that going to go over when you tell your wife that? Honey, I don't even desire you. I wouldn't suggest that. What's he doing? Renunciation. What's the wife do to the husband? Renunciation. There is no one that rivals the treasure of Christ He's not saying you can't love anybody else and that you don't love anybody else in heaven. He's saying the highest treasure is Jesus Christ. Renunciation. Appropriation. Appropriation. With the same words, he's saying, God is the treasure that I seek. God is my delight. Verse 26. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The portion of my inheritance forever and the portion of my cup right now. The portion of my he- uh, inheritance in heaven, I have no one in heaven but God. And the portion of my cup right now, there's no one on earth I desire beside God. Meaning there's no one that rivals God. Yes, we love people. Yes, there are joys on this earth. Yes, there are treasures that have value. But no, they do not rival God. Unless, of course... Your heart allows it to be so. You cannot just renounce sin. You cannot just renounce idolatry. We must. We should do like David sometimes and talk to ourselves. I say no to that. I'm not going there. Because it's so easy for us to go there, isn't it? Then what does David do? He he takes possession of his inheritance. Beloved, have you taken possession of Christ? 
That's what Paul did in Philippians chapter 3 verse 7 when he says, what, gain, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, I count all things loss. What is that? Renunciation. Everything, Paul? I mean, a trip to the beach? Come on. The, the church? The people that you delighted in? I counted all refuse. Now, Paul's not saying he threw everything in the trash and that nothing has value. Nothing on earth has value. It does have value. But he's saying, not that value. I count all things as lesser, as loss, as refuse. For what? For the excellency. Here's appropriation. See, Paul didn't just say, I'm finished with that life. That life was game. It's over. I renounce it. What are you going to do now, Paul? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, present tense, that I may win Christ. So he renounces the former way, but he's pursuing a new way of the gain of Christ. That's what David is saying to us in this psalm. David is saying he has the Lord set before him as the supreme treasure, so he renounces everything else to appropriate the treasure. He wants to lay hold on the treasure. So we can't be static, can we? As soon as you become neutral, you drift away from God. Now how is it that may be true in your life today? You can renounce sin. You can say, I I get that. I renounce that. That's not something I should be part of. Yet you have not appropriated Christ. You haven't lifted a finger to pursue Christ. Where will that take you? Your sorrows shall be multiplied that follow after other gods. When you should say, I will not, by God's grace, and His grace is sufficient, and He gives more grace, I will not, I will follow the portion, the treasure, the choice of mine inheritance. The one who maintains, who secures my lot, my allotment. So Christ is your allotment and God, through the sealing of the Holy Spirit, has secured your allotment all the way to glory. So keep pressing on toward the mark, as Paul would say, for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And you will find when your renunciation is based on your pursuit of a greater treasure, you can be stable You'll be less likely to be moved. And when you are shaken, you won't fall. Because Christ will be the one holding you up. Because you have Him in your sights. What number am I? Children? Say it again. Five. Thank you. Number five. Verse seven. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. Now David has the Lord set before him as his guide. So repeat after me. You are my guide. You are my guide. All right, I know you're awake. Is he your guide? Well, let's look at what David is saying. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. Now years ago... Christians used to put a bumper sticker on their car. If you've ever seen an old car, you may still see one. God is my co-pilot. Well, somebody probably didn't like that too much and thought there was a little off, so they came up with a bumper sticker that said, well, God is my pilot. Well, sometimes as Christians, we need a third bumper sticker. Now, it's not a good one, but this is what we need. God is my backseat driver. Now, you know that's not good. The label backseat driver means this. 
I don't want anybody telling me how to drive. I've been driving for 43 years. Okay, and I'll be, I'll be glad to remind you that. I don't need the backseat person to tell me how to drive. I don't need to tell them, them to tell me 10 and 3. I don't need to have them tell me where to turn and how to get there. I've been doing it for 43 years. But how many times do we tell God, if you could just sit in the back seat, and I'll tell you if I need you to guide the car on the way to glory. But that's what we do sometimes, isn't it? And what we're going to find out is God's not in the back seat. God's not in the car. Because the only position God is after is behind the wheel of your life. Because Jesus is Lord. So, is God your guide? Is He your guide? Now, in order to have a guide, there are a few things that are necessary. First of all, you have to trust the guide, right? Now, I've been in the back seat with some people that I just thought, if, I, it was, if they stop the car, I'm going to jump out even if it's rolling. I don't know where they're going. I don't know where they're taking me. And I sure don't know I'm going to get there safely. So you think you can drive better than God. It's really silly to even say it, right? Of course not. How often do we live without any thought as to whether my life is in any way in harmony with what God says it ought to be. See? To have a guide, you need to trust the guide. Is the guide good? Is he trustworthy? Is he intelligent? Does he know what he's doing? Does he know how to drive the car? And yet, if God is not your guide, you're saying, I, I, don't, I can do better at this, God. Now, some people just throw him off as a guide altogether, but, but a true believer has to recognize that sometimes we do that with God, don't we? Sometimes we go days and weeks and we never give a thought to whether or not, is my life really under the guidance of God and what he says in his word? Now, going back to Asaph in Psalm 73, he says this, Yet I, I am nevertheless continually with you. You have held me with your right hand. This is when Asaph recovers. He almost slipped. Now he's stable again. Yet I'm continually with you. You have held me by your right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. So when Asaph comes back to where David is, he had been shaken. He had almost fallen. He, he gets a recovery. He stands up again. He says, you will guide me with your counsel. Afterward, receive me to glory. Now why does Asaph say, God has continually been with me? Or I've been continually with God. He, he wasn't. He, he was about to check out and fall. Because he acknowledged God was holding him by his right hand. That means to grasp. God had held on to Asaph even though Asaph let go of God. You ever had that experience? You had to look back at a time in your life and say, God, the only reason I'm continually with you is not because I held on to your hand. I just let it go. You had a strong grip of grace in my life and you rescued me. All right. Now here's the question. How did God's hand reach out and grab Asaph's hand and rescue him? Here it is. You will guide me with your counsel. It wasn't in a vacuum. Asaph went back into the sanctuary of God and God grabbed his hand and rescued him because he heard counsel from the word of God. It wasn't some mysterious thing that happened. He recovered by the guidance of God. Beloved, God is holding on to His people in part by the instruction and the guidance of His Word. He preserves us by the revelation of His Word. 
And Asa says, you will receive me into glory. So the counsel of God is part of what God is using to safely bring the car all the way to heaven's shore. Safely. I don't think we view God's word like that at times, do we? We think, well, you can take it or leave it. No, we can't. God reached out and rescued David at times. Through what? Nathan the prophet. The counsel of God brought him to conviction. God reached out and grabs the ace of hand. With what? The counsel of God. And God rescues you and keeps you safely all the way to glory when He's driving the car of your life and you're taking counsel from the Lord. Listen to Paul when he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. He said, Timothy, continue in the things which you have learned and heard, knowing of whom you have learned them. And that from a child you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Wise unto salvation means the car of wisdom is moving toward salvation. Wait a minute, I thought Timothy was already saved. Well, he was. But he wasn't yet, right? He was already justified, but he's not yet glorified. He's already completely right with God, but he hasn't reached heaven. Now, what's going to get Timothy's car safely all the way to glory? The Scriptures are able to take the car of wisdom all the way to glory for all Scriptures given by inspiration of God. God is using His Word through preaching and and counseling and fellowship groups, yes, to sustain us so that we're not moved. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the only thing in God's bag of salvation that He uses. He's got providence. He's got ways He keeps us in faith all the way to glory. But one of them is His counsel. He uses His counsel to keep us safely going. So we need to use counsel. We need to be in God's Word and receiving counsel from one another and the Word of God. Because it's not ultimately from one another. It's from Jesus He set up His body this way so that we would communicate the Word of God to one another. And God uses His Word to keep us because we're kept by the power of God through faith. And as soon as you say faith, you just said revelation. Because faith is holding on to God through revelation. I mean, what does a person know without the Bible? What do they know without the Bible? Nothing. The new birth doesn't inform the mind of everything about God. It just turns on the light. So when the revelation comes, we receive Christ by faith and we start receiving His counsel. We start to know Him because there's something implanted in the heart that knows Him. We start to have wisdom because wisdom has been engrafted in the heart. And so God's counsel is very important for Christians So David said, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel, which means that's why I'm not moving, right? There are things coming at David hard. Maybe it's the threat of the grave in the last part. Maybe it's other gods he's tempted to follow. What what gives him the counterbalance? What stands him up again? He's stable. It's counsel. It's counsel. But notice this. "My My reins also shall instruct me in the night seasons. Now the word reins can literally mean kidneys. I know, I know, that, that's not a very pleasant thought. But it was a metaphor among the Jews to mean the affections, the emotions, the mind. Your mind. David has a very neat way 
of helping him determine if he's really following the counsel of God. You see, when he goes to bed, he doesn't just take his iPhone, right? Don't raise your hand if you, if you do that. Okay, my hand's going up, you know, catch up on the news of the day, right? There's these funny little things that happen you can watch and you can get a good laugh before you go to bed. I, I get it, I get it. I've been there, done that kind of thing. But David lays his iPhone aside and his mind instructs him when he lays down as to the guidance of God like this. Was I following God's guidance at work today? When I was talking to my children today, was I following the guidance of God? His reins, his mind begins to convict, to correct, and to admonish. That's the word instruct means. In the night seasons. He communes with his own heart on his bed. So he's not just saying, well, yeah, I'm following the guidance of God when he's really not. No, he's actually reflecting. It doesn't have to be the night seasons. You can reflect any time on. Am I really letting God, if we could say it that way, drive the car of my life? Did I really love today? Did I do what I should do today that would show that God is my God? Well, if not, then David does what? He lets his reins instruct him. And there's correction. There's repentance. And he wakes up the next day and does it all over again. See? So we shouldn't assume that, that we're here on Sunday. I, I'm, I'm following the guidance of God. We need to reflect and let our reins instruct us in the night season. And then what does the Holy Spirit help us to do? Put on the new man the next day. Right? Put on the new man. Six. Number six. Verse seven. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Next. David has the Lord always set before him as his hope. His hope. Does everybody agree with that? Is that number six or number seven? Six. Okay, thank you. So say it after me. You are my hope. You are my hope. Is he? David says his flesh shall rest in hope. Now we get to the passages where Peter specifically applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have set the Lord as a counterbalance... Always before me because he's at my right hand, which means he's close. If someone's at your right hand, then he's near. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoiceth. Could be a reference there to the head. Peter says the tongue rejoices. So could be his heart and his words are rejoicing. And his flesh is resting in hope. Rest is security. Or peace. So David is experiencing a rest in turbulence. We don't know what's happening, but there's, there are forces that are coming in his life that have the potential to shake him. But he's resting. He has peace. He has security uh, because of the counsel of God. And now he's resting in hope in God. Hope in God.
Now, why is he hoping in God? What do we look here and say, this is why David is resting in hope? Verse 10, because you will not leave my soul in hell. Now, David is taking his soul for a prayer phrase for, for his person. We could say his body. We know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So his body will not be left in Hades or the grave. So David can rest in hope because he has the Lord set before him, which means when he looks at the grave, it doesn't produce fear because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that God will not abandon him and leave him in the grave. Hope is an expectation of a future good. The only way we can possibly rest and have peace in hope is when we are looking to Christ as the source of whatever we expect. All right? So if we're hoping in something, we're expecting that something to bring to us a fulfillment, a peace, a security, a rest, and then we will pursue and grasp that's something. Whatever it is, that, that's a definition of idolatry. But when David is resting in hope, he feels security, he feels peace in the coming Messiah that his soul will not be left in hell. Now, let me speak to, to, to the issue of rest. Very few people today, because of social media, have any rest. It just seems like life is passing them by. Have you ever felt that? I mean, the pictures and the events and the excitement... And the glory and, and the, the worldwide travel and the wealth and, and, and everything is just like, and here I am in just a little bitty huntsful, you know. Now, mothers, how can you really rest when all that's going on? You're just at home trying to wrestle with dirty diapers and children. And Can this apply to you, being a mother? Okay. Are you ever tempted to be moved when you see... Out there, the excitement of women that are they're making advancements and moving up in the world, and they're, they're in the corporate world. Fine, okay, but do you ever feel restless instead of resting in hope? And you men, sometimes you're doing a 40-hour week. It's mundane. It's just not exciting. It's just the same thing over and over and over. You think life is just passing me by. This kept David stable, and he rested in hope. Why? Because, verse 10, Neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Now, this is what Peter applies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. David here is a prophet, according to Peter. Paul uses this also in Acts 13 and says, David saw corruption, therefore this psalm is about Jesus Christ. He was a prophet. He was seeing and spake before the resurrection of Christ. So David is resting in hope because of the coming Redeemer, as he wrote in this time, would not see corruption. He would not decay in the grave. And he didn't because he was raised from the dead. That's where our hope lies as well, beloved. So what David is saying, in Him alone do I have this hope. In Christ alone, my soul will not be abandoned. In Christ alone, my body will be raised from the dead. In Christ alone 
Can I rest? Can I find peace and security? Can I expect at some future time there will be a delivery on my desire to be happy? That will keep you stable if you believe that. If you really trust that to be true. No matter what life brings me by the providence of God. No matter how routine, mundane. No matter, no matter how many lands I don't get to see. No matter how many vacations I have to miss. No matter how many uh, uh, places on the planet I never get to see. I can rest right here, right now, wherever I am. Because God did not suffer His Holy One to see corruption. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So every promise in Him is a big yes and amen to the glory of God the Father. You can rest in hope. And that hope will give you stability. You can have hope that anchors the soul and makes you sure and steadfast. You can be stable when the world is totally unstable. There's political instability. There's worldwide instability. We cannot be moved because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We set Him before us and we're glad and we're rejoicing and we're resting in hope because God will not leave your body in hell or the grave because He didn't leave Christ. So in Him alone, we have this hope. And what is this hope? And this is my last one, so I guess I miscounted. This is number seven, right? So not eight, seven. So, Verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because David has the Lord set before him, Jesus is his satisfaction. You are my satisfaction. I hope he's, he's better than that. <laughs> I didn't prime you. Here we go. You are my satisfaction. That's what David is saying. That's why David is resting. Now this applies first to Christ. Only Christ went through the pathway of obedience, through the pathway of death, burial, and resurrection, and is seated at the right hand of God. And what is there? Fullness of joy, pleasures for a few months. Forever. Can anybody get a handle on that? What are the pleasures of God? Can somebody just explain that in just basic terms to me? How intense, how great is the pleasures of an eternal God? I don't know. I just know this. It's not anything close that I've experienced. I haven't even tasted. Well, we've tasted. But I haven't even had a full drink of what that means. And David says, He is my satisfaction. And so when we see Christ like that, it brings stability. It, it, it brings hope. Because we are not missing anything, beloved. You're, you're not missing anything in life in terms of who Christ is. In terms of who He is. And so I end with this passage in Psalm 17. Same writer, verse 15. Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. You see, Psalm 16, verse 11, really squares well 
with Psalm 17, verse 15. The same man says, For me, now the wicked, they have their portion in this life. God, you fill them with hid treasures. They are full of the treasures and substance of the world. Yes, they drink it in. Yes, they have it all right now, but not in the future. They have just a short period of being satisfied. Just a very short period. And then sorrows multiplied. But for the Christian, as for me, David says, I I shall behold thy face in righteousness. That means you have to be right to see God. You can't see Him being unrighteous. So David says, when I wake, I'm going to be righteous. Christ went before me. He gave me His righteousness. Now when you see His face, or when you're righteous so you can see Christ, when you're in His likeness, because that's what has to happen before you see God, you will be totally and completely sated. That's the word there. Sated. It's just like, I don't think I can drink another drop. Oh, but you can because your capacity just keeps expanding. I don't think I can drink another drop of pleasure. Yes, you can. Because your capacity will expand and expand. And you'll be satisfied forever. So Christian hope in God. Set the Lord always before you. Because He's at the right hand of God. These things are true. Because He is risen. He's not in the grave. He is not there any longer. It's an empty tomb. You won't be moved. So as to fall totally and completely from God, but He'll hold you in the grip of His grace. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. We thank